Welcome to the Wake Park Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Wake Park Church in Northeast Minneapolis. We do everything we do because we believe life with Jesus is better. If you like what you hear, we'd love to have you swing by and join us for worship. We meet on Sundays at 10 a.m. and have other groups and ministries on various days of the week. You can learn more by going to wakeparkchurch.org. Today's scripture reading is Psalm 8, the entire psalm. In the Pew Bible, that's number 371. 371 in the Pew Bible. And I'll be reading from the Living Bible, original version. O Lord our God, the majesty and glory of your name fills all the earth and overflows the heavens. You have taught the little children to praise you perfectly. May their example shame and silence your enemies. When I look up into the night skies and see the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars you have made, I cannot understand how you bother, how you can bother with mere puny man to pay any attention to him. And yet you have made him only a little lower than the angels and placed a crown of glory and honor upon his head. You have put him in charge of everything you made. Everything is put under his authority. All sheep and oxen and wild animals too, the birds and fish and all the life in the sea. O Jehovah our Lord, the majesty and glory of your name fills the earth. Well, good morning, church. We're so glad to have our kids with us in our services. We've just started our summer schedule for Kids Park, where kids stay in the service with us from preschool on up. Um, There are activity bags in the back if you need them, and a kid's corner back in the commons if you have some wiggles you need to get out. Um, And of course, our nursery is still open for our littlest ones. But um, we will have a kid's message in every service that our kids are with us because you're important, and we want you to know what it is that we're talking about here in the service. So I thought I would start off today by telling you about the very first baseball game in the Bible. Who knew there was baseball in the Bible? Pastor Dwayne did. It's in uh, Genesis chapter 1, in the big inning. Uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then two chapters later, Eve stole first, and then Adam stole second. Uh, Yeah, okay, it's Father's Day. We had to throw some dad jokes in there for the dads among us. So we're going to look at a part of God's story from the Bible, a true piece of history about God making our world, including the very first two people, Adam and Eve. So we're going to start in the very first book, in the very first chapter, in the very first verse, Genesis 1-1, where it says, in the beginning, not the big inning, in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. Now, after every day of creation, God says that his creation's good. So I want you to say that part with me after I describe each day of creation. You ready? Let's practice. I said a day of creation, and you say it was? All right, we'll get used to it after a few days. So on the first day, God said, let there be light. So light was created, and God separated it from the darkness, calling the light day and the dark night, and he said that it was? There you go. On the second day, God separated the waters with air. Some of the water was above in the air. Some of the water was below the air. And God named the air sky, 
And he said that it was? On the third day, God gathered up the water under the sky into certain places so that dry land could appear. He named the dry land earth and the water that was gathered together the seas. And he also created plants to grow in the earth. And he said that it was? There you go. Now remember how on day one, God made day and night? Well, on day four, he created things to fill the day and night. He made the sun to give light to the day and the moon and stars to give their own kind of light during the night. And he said that it was? Remember how on day two, God separated the waters and made air? Well, on day five, he created animals to fill the water and the air. He made every kind of creature that lives in the water, like fish and whales and sharks, and every kind of bird that flies in the sky. And he said that it was? Now, remember on day three, how God created dry land and called it earth? Well, on day six, he made animals, wild animals, tame animals, every kind of animal to fill the earth. And he said that it was? But before the sixth day was done, God had one more creation to make, humans. So in Genesis 1, beginning in verse 26, it says this, Then God said, Let us make human beings in our image and likeness. Now let's stop right there. What does it be made to be made what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Well, you may remember me talking about it before using this cookie cutter. It's in the shape of a person. Now, if I rolled out some cookie dough and I used this cutter in that cookie dough, I'd make a cookie that was in the shape of a person. Now, would that cookie actually be a person? No, it wouldn't actually be a person, but it would have some similar qualities to a person. It would have arms just like a person and legs just like a person. It would be in the image of a person. And that's a little bit of what it's like for us to be made in the image of God. Now, we aren't God. We're made in his image. And I don't know if he has arms and legs like we do, but I do know that we have some qualities that are similar to God because we're made in his image. For example, we just talked about all those things that God made. God is creative. And in the same way, each of us is creative in our own ways. Maybe you're creative in how you write or tell stories. Maybe you're creative in how you paint or color or build. Maybe you're creative in how you come up with new plays on the soccer field. I don't know how God has made you creative, but we are creative because God is creative. It's a way that we reflect part of who he is. We also know that God can be responsible for caring for things. So he made us able to be responsible for caring for things in our world too. That's another really cool way that we see the image of God in each other. Some people are really good at gardening and taking care of plants. That's not me, but I know Miss Naomi is good at that. Other people are really good at making yummy food for the people that they love, like Lincoln's dad. He makes really good food. Some other people are still good at taking animals, taking care of animals as pets or animals that are used on farms. So let's take a quick look back at Genesis to learn more about our responsibility to care for God's creation. It continues, then God said, let them make human being, let us make human beings in our image and likeness. Let them rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky. Let them rule over the tame animals, over all the earth and over all the small crawling animals on the earth. In other words, we have a job and that's a big job. It's to take care of God's world. We're supposed to take care of everything that he created to help it flourish and grow well. So God created image, human beings in his image. In the image of God, he created them. He created them male and female. That means God made you on purpose 
exactly the way you're supposed to be. God blessed them and said, have many children and grow in number, fill the earth and be its master, rule over the fish in the sea and over the birds in the sky, rule over every living thing that moves on earth. And then check out what happens next. God looked at everything he made and it was not quite. It was a little different. It was very good. Now that human beings were on the scene, Nathaniel's right. It wasn't just good. It was very good. God made every part of his creation with care. And he's paid special attention to when he created human beings. Because like any, unlike anything else in our world, unlike the elephants and the giraffes and the goldfish and the snakes, unlike anything else, we are made in the image of God. He breathed his breath into us. And that means every single human, no matter how big or small or tall or short or fast or slow or old or young, no matter how well your body or your brains might work, we are all incredibly valuable. And that is what Pastor Corey is going to be talking about in this morning's message on what it means to be human. Well, good morning, and happy Father's Day to those of you who are fathers. Make sure that you uh, take the time and tell your father happy, happy Father's Day. Appreciate him. It's, uh, it's an important day for fathers. Well, this is the uh, second week of our summer series that we're calling Foundations of Faith. And last week, we started by talking about the fact that many people in our world today bristle at the idea that Christianity has a set of doctrines that we are expected to follow. And they say that doctrine is too uh, specific, it's too restrictive in a world that we know that what's best for people is that they have freedom. Okay? But remember what we said. We said life is actually like playing a song. You're actually free to improvise as long as it's within the structure of the time and the key signature and the chord progression. Because just playing whatever you want really takes no skill at all, and frankly, it doesn't sound very good. Okay? But when you play within those limits, within that key signature, within that time signature, it works because you're in harmony and in time with other people. You see, freedom is good as long as we live within the limits that God has given us. And Christian doctrine provides us with those limits, provides us with those boundaries, because we believe that Christian doctrine corresponds to the way God created the world. And so we find this uh, truth in Scripture, which is the definitive account of God's revelation to humanity. Uh, and that's the commitment that, it, that, uh, that Christians make. And it guides how we look at and how we live in the world. Now, last week, we stopped started by talking about God as our Heavenly Father, and we said that the Apostles' Creed actually summarizes what the Bible says about God as our Father when it says, He is God the Father Almighty, the Maker of heaven and earth. And we said, of course, that God is the Creator and the Ruler of the universe. And, and I know that sounds very intimidating, okay? but basically Jesus told us then what that Creator and Ruler of the universe is like. That he is our heavenly father who is crazy about us. And even for those of us who wander away, he's eager to forgive and bring us back, not as slaves, but as children. Okay? Now, the Bible tells us that God is Trinity, three in one. 
Holy, uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so you might think that this week, the second week, we'll move on to talking about the Son, but we're actually not going to do that. Because I believe that in order to really understand what the Son is about, there are a couple of things that we need to talk about before that. And the first one we're going to talk about today, and it's the question, what does it mean to be human? Who are we as humans? In fact, this is what the psalmist in Psalm 8 is wondering. What is humankind that you are mindful of them? It's a great question, isn't it, Uh, when you think about it. On the one hand, humans can do some pretty amazing things. We have incredible capacity to be able to do great things. And in fact, I brought a video along today to show you some of the great things that humans can do. So let's go ahead and roll that video. Those are some pretty cool things, aren't they? 
Pretty, pretty amazing. I mean, how many of those things can you do, right? <laughs> Let's be honest here, all right? I can't. Now, of course, humans can do things that are much more amazing than just jumping and doing backflips over cars. We do other great things too. For instance, we have like two robots on Mars right now which is pretty amazing when you, when you think about it. Or, or even just think about downtown Minneapolis and think about the feats of engineering that it takes to create all of those buildings and have them stand for years and years and years, all of those things. Advances in modern medicine, absolutely incredible. Humans have amazing potential for good. But David's question is actually a really good one when we realize how often we fail to live up to the potential that we have. For instance, he recognized that for everyone who can do flips over cars, there are dozens of people whose greatest fit is polishing off an entire bag of potato chips during an episode of Wheel of Fortune. Engineers can do incredible, amazing things in, in designing buildings, but they also design nuclear missiles that can wipe out entire populations. We're capable of amazing feats of self-sacrifice on the one hand, but great selfishness on the other. And on the surface, that can be kind of a puzzling thing to think about, but it actually makes perfect sense when you understand the biblical view of what it means to be human. See, Psalm 8 is David's reflection on the biblical creation story. You can almost picture the scene that David is outside during the night sky, looking at this sky full of stars. And in verse 3, he writes, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. In other words, he's thinking about the vastness of the universe. And he didn't even know that there are more than 180 billion galaxies in our universe, more than our minds can even imagine. And then he thinks about the fact that in the middle of these, there are these tiny, frail creatures. And he asks, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. It's a pretty incredible thought when you think about it. Now, when you put it in that perspective, you can understand David's awe. All the stars and galaxies, all of the black holes, and even just earth itself, God has made us rulers over all of that. I mean, can you imagine what that is all about? It's blowing David's mind. He's saying, I don't get it, God. I don't understand why you would make such a big deal out of us. But then he goes on citing some doctrine, right? Some, 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 a conviction that he has, you might say, a doctrine of humanity. You've made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You've made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under your feet, all flocks and herds and the wild animals of the wild, birds in the sky and fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. Now, this is a direct allusion to the Genesis story in Genesis 1 and 2. Because, you see, after God created the heavens and the earth and water and all of the people uh, and all of the creatures that live in it, he created humans. And this is what he says about creating humans. He says, Then God said, Let us make humankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And then it adds this poem. So God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. 
God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And this is where we get the foundation of what it means to be human. Okay? And so I want to actually make that shift from Psalm chapter 8, which is a reflection on Genesis 1 and 2, and actually go to Genesis 1 and 2 to the creation story to help us understand the Christian doctrine of what it means to be human. Now, we can't possibly cover everything in just one sermon. Abby actually covered a few things that I'm not going to, uh, but, uh, but all of those might be like subcategories of what I'm going to talk about. But at least what we can do today is we can give ourselves a framework for how to think about what it means to be human. Now, anytime we talk about the biblical view of humanity, we have to start with this, this idea that humans are made in the image of God. Now, theologians and philosophers and family ministry pastors have spilled a lot of ink about what this might mean. But one area of wide agreement when it comes to the image of God is that there is something about humans that set us apart from the rest of creation. That's something that we all agree on. We are creatures just like apes and crocodiles and anteaters, but there's some kind of dividing line that separates us between us and all of the other animals. And of course, some philosophers have speculated that what's, what sets us apart is the fact that we have self-awareness that other animals don't. Others say that it's our intellectual capacity. Others say that it's our moral reasoning. For instance, we don't hold lions responsible for killing lions in the same way that we hold humans responsible for killing each other. Okay? There might, and there might be truth to all of these things. Okay, but the Bible doesn't really mention any of these as answers to what it means to be made in the image of God. But instead, what we're going to do is we're going to look to Scripture and we're going to find three aspects of what it means to be made in the image of God. All right? The first aspect of being made in the image of God is that all human life has incalculable worth. All human life has incalculable worth. Now, this aspect isn't actually explicit in Genesis 1 and 2, but it's one that is referred to uh, in other places in Scripture. For instance, in Genesis chapter 9, when Noah and his family are getting off the ark after the flood, God makes a new covenant with them because the flood after the flood is kind of this new creation. And so Noah and his family now take on the role that Adam and Eve had. And so, he, so, it, so it says in, in uh, Genesis 9.1, uh, it repeats the original creation mandate. Then God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Okay? And then we see this a little bit later in Genesis 9-6. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God created humankind. So in other words, why do we hold humans responsible for killing other humans? It's because all human life is valuable. In fact, the Apostle James alludes to this idea in his own book uh, in the New Testament where he writes in James 3.9, he says, with, our, with the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. So as you can see, the Bible has a high view of human, humans, and as a result, we should treat all humans with respect and dignity. Now, one of the applications of this, and one that I think is unique to Christianity, is that we see that human life is valuable because it's sacred, not because it's useful. See, what do we mean by this? 
See, our society is not big on the idea of something being sacred. Everything is all about utility. And so we tend to judge people based on their value to society. We, ju we judge people who are useful and powerful and athletic and rich or smart or something like that as being more valuable than just the average everyday people. But from a biblical perspective, we should value all human lives not just because of what they can contribute, but because they're human. Okay, and that's why Christian, as Christians we talk about this thing called the sanctity of life. And it's not just a political talking point. It's actually fundamental to many different uh, aspects of Christian ethics. Okay, but, but of course, what does that mean? Well, one of, the, one of the big applications in our society and really all around the world and in Christianity from the beginning of Christianity, uh, this application has to do with something called abortion. Psalm 139, 13 and 14 says this, You created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. A little bit later in, in verse 16, he says, Your eyes saw my unformed body. And what that signifies to us is that God knows us even while we are in the womb. He knows us even before we are born. And so if life is valuable just because it's sacred, then that life is valuable as well. Whether or not it's useful, whether or not someone wants it, whether or not it's convenient. And so Christians from the very beginning have listed abortion as a sin because it violates the image of God in humans. Now, of course, I do hear the, the concern from some women, especially those who are in poverty, that if they get pregnant, then they can feel hopeless because they don't know if they can take care of that child. And, and hopefully that's something that we can empathize with, with women who are in that situation. But at the same time, that's why we have organizations like crisis pregnancy centers that, uh, that can help women and families who are considering abortions make a different choice and make, it make them see that it is actually viable, that they will have some support, that they will be able to to raise that child, to make it much more doable with some help from the people around them. And the fact of the matter is, is the overwhelming majority of women don't want to have abortions, okay? which is why more and more Christians, I think, and I see this more and more as I, as I look at our society, uh, consider being pro-life not just being anti-abortion, uh, but also being pro-life from womb to tomb, okay? taking care of all life. And that means not only passing laws that limit or prohibit abortion, but also creating an environment, creating a society, wrapping around people to give them social and financial support that makes raising a baby seem a little less daunting to people who don't have resources. And hopefully what we can do is, is we can encourage and incentivize families to stay together, to make it viable, to make it seem possible to be able to raise a child. And of course, we shouldn't shame women who have had abortions. Many times they do it because they feel stuck or hopeless. In fact, at times in the church, uh, women get into, this, uh, get into this situation where they get pregnant out of wedlock and they fear being shamed or ostracized by their church community and they don't know what else to do. And so as a church, we need to be faithful to the biblical teaching about sex and family, but refrain from stigmatizing or ostracizing uh, people who have fallen short of that standard because we value the child and we also value the mother. And so we have to be consistent with this, uh, but, but it's because of this doctrine that all human life 
is valuable because it's sacred. Now, of course, you know, that's just one issue that we could talk about, but, but the doctrine of the image of God is the foundation of so many issues, so many uh, aspects of Christian ethics, from uh, end-of-life issues to capital punishment to disability to war and violence, racism. I'm sure that we could come up with many other issues that this hits on, okay? But, but what I want you to see is that this is not just an abstract doctrine, It's at the heart of what we Christians believe it means to be human. And we haven't always lived consistently with that. We haven't always lived faithfully to that. And it's it's, it's difficult for all of us sometimes to treat every human life as sacred. But compassion and concern for all of life because we are made in the image of God is at the core of Christian ethics. We all fall short of that ideal. And I praise God that he sees our lives as sacred and that he is willing to forgive. And, you know, what we see in Scripture is that we are valuable, not because we're good. In fact, it's kind of the other way around. Rather than knowing and believing that, uh, rather knowing and believing that we are made in the image of God should then lead us to be good, to live up to the high calling that God has given us. And that leads us to our second aspect of what it means to be made in the image of God. It's that we have a responsibility to steward God's creation. The Bible tells us that God is the king of the world, and we are stationed here not just as his representatives, although that's part of it, we are the the cookie cutters, right? Uh, But we are here to work on God's behalf in his creation. And so that's why we see in Genesis 2.15, it tells us, the Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it. Now I want you to see something. I want you to notice something here. That's Genesis 2.15. In Genesis 3, we have what's called the fall, and we'll talk about that next week, uh, where Adam and Eve sinned and everything was corrupted. But notice, this is Genesis 2, right? The fall hasn't happened yet. And so you see what's happening is, is that creation, even in the beginning, even though it is good, it's actually incomplete. Because when God creates human beings, we have work to do. We actually can improve on the world that God made for us. He, he created it that way. Okay? Not after the fall, but before the fall. Now, after the fall, of course, we have, we have our work cut out for us now. But, but even before that, that was part of, our, part of our job as just being made in the image of God. Okay? And so what this means is, is that creation was not just made for our enjoyment or our comfort. Now, through creation, God does provide for humans. He gave us plants and fruit uh, to eat right away and even animals later on in Genesis. And so we can enjoy God's good creation but we have a responsibility to take care of it. And I think the best way that we can talk about this is by using the, this old-fashioned term that we don't use very much anymore, the, uh, the, the idea of stewardship. Like I said, we don't use it anymore, but a steward is someone who cares for someone else's property, okay? taking care of what belongs to someone else. And so I want you to see this. In uh, Psalm 24.1, it says this, The earth is the Lord's, and everything in it. And this is consistent with the creation story, right? Everything is created by God and created for God. It all belongs to Him. And we were created to take care of what belongs to Him. And that means that what you have is not really yours. Think about your house. Think about your car. Think about your land. Think about the money in your bank account. It's not really yours. 
It's not mine either. It belongs to God, and we are given care. We are given stewardship of that. But there's an unfortunate trend in our society today. Maybe it's one that is not just in our society and not just at our time, but it's certainly we can see it here. And it's that we have begun to see ourselves, the way we see ourselves as humans has shifted from being stewards to being consumers. And this process starts when we think that God is not the center of our universe. We begin to forget that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, and we start to believe that stuff on earth is something that we can possess, that it really is ours. And then we start to find value in what we have rather than in what God says about us. And pretty soon we start to organize our lives around what we consume rather than organizing our lives around stewarding what God has given us. Okay? And so what does that look like? What are some examples of that? Well, it can, it can look like this desire for accumulation. Okay, there's a, a societal myth that most of us buy into that we start off, you know, when you're young and you just get out of school, get out of college or whatever, that you start off with just a few things, maybe a small house and a, a cheap car, whatever you can afford. But as you get higher paying jobs and you become more financially secure, the expectation is, is we're going to buy a bigger house and we're going to buy a nicer car and we're going to raise our standard of living. And that's the culture that we've created. That's not just an individual thing, but the actual society that we live in actually encourages that because it teaches us to see ourselves primarily as consumers. And one bit of evidence for this is the fact that, that by and large, Christians don't tithe. Now, one of the things that we see in studies, at least the last one that I saw, is that, Christ, that evangelical Christians are the second most generous group in the country, which is pretty amazing when you think about it. Second to Mormons, right? But at the same time, generous is kind of a relative term because the average Christian actually gives a little over 2% of his income away. So even Christians don't necessarily buy into this truth that we are simply stewards of what belongs to God. We want to hoard. We want to accumulate. And a lot of that is because we believe that we're more valuable when we have more stuff. Consumerism can also look like focusing on leisure activities. Okay? And this is similar to accumulation, but rather than accumulating things, we accumulate uh, experiences. And so for many people, this is the good life. So they won't spend a lot of money on a house or a car, but they'll spend it on vacations or other things like that. Uh, and, and so for a lot of people, work is something that they tolerate in order to make money, uh, to fund the things that will really make me happy. But the problem is is that it doesn't really work, okay? Because humans are wired to find life in significance. And so when we achieve what we want and we spend our life in leisure, it doesn't actually make us happy because we're no longer doing things that are significant for the world. Consumerism can also be a preoccupation with personal safety and security, okay? And it's not that safety is a terrible thing. Even Proverbs talks about things like saving for the future. But when we see real needs around us and we keep wanting to save more and more or we're afraid of getting hurt or taken advantage of or looking bad, it actually hinders our ability to be able to fulfill the task that God has given us in our society. But what you need to know is, is that the consumer life is not natural for us as humans. It's not how we were created. It feels natural, 
But it's not how God created us. We were created to find life in stewarding God's uh, resources with the gifts and the wisdom that he gave us. And that's why since World War II, our gross national product has gone through the roof, but our gross national happiness is dropping steadily. Did you know that there was something called the gross national happiness? It's actually like an index that they, that they look at. You can, you can look it up, right? But it's dropping steadily despite the fact that we are getting richer. And the reason is, is because we're not meant to be consumers. We're called to be stewards of God's creation. But you also need to know that we're not meant to do that alone. We're not meant to do it just as individuals. This is another societal myth that we are just individuals. In fact, in Genesis chapter 2, God recognizes that, God, that, that Adam can't, cre- can't uh, uh, fulfill the creation mandate on his own. And so he creates Eve as a suitable helper. Now, the word, word helper, we sometimes misunderstand that, uh, means someone who comes to the rescue. Oftentimes, in fact, most of the time when it's used in the Old Testament, it's used of, of God himself. Okay? Uh, and so, in other words, it's not that the man has work to do and the woman is his little helper, you know, kind of like a, a child helping with chores around the house. It doesn't mean that at all. But what it means is, is that the man and the woman share in the task to bring order and flourishing to the world. Okay? Now, there's another word in there, this word suitable, and it's the Hebrew word konegdo, which means the same but different. It's a compound word that means the same but different. And so without going into a lot of detail, this is actually the foundation of, of biblical marriage. The woman is the same as the man in that she's human and not like all the other animals, but she's also different because she's complementary. And it's speaking there of sexual difference, right? Because if the mandate in Genesis 1:28 is to fill the earth and subdue it, humans do that partly through reproduction, which means that we have to have suitable helpers for each other. Okay, now... There's also a word in there that is oftentimes misinterpreted as well, and it's the word subdue. It's a word that sounds harsh and authoritarian. It's actually the Hebrew word kabash, and uh, and it can have some negative connotations. So when we think about something like the empire came in and subdued the rebellion, I guess depending if you're on the side of the empire, that's a good thing. If you're part of the rebellion, it's not a very good thing, But but it's very violent, at least it seems. But the word is actually a much more positive word than that, and it means to bring order so that flourishing might come. And so when God is creating, he holds back the water in the sky. He subdues it. And the reason he does that is he wants to create a space where humans can live and thrive. And in fact, the whole order of creation is God bringing order out of chaos. That's the, that's the work of God in creation. Uh, For those of you who are gardeners, you can maybe think about it this way. Plants grow in the wild, right? I'm I'm sure that at some point, someone found the first tomato plant growing in the wild, and many times they can do really well. They can do fine by themselves. But when a skilled gardener imposes order on a garden, he can make those plants start to thrive, pays attention to the distance that the plants are from each other, to the amount of sun and water, to the type of soil. And when they do that, they can bring out the best in the plant, can bring about uh, flourishing. And this is what, to, what subduing means. It means to impose, impose an order that brings about the flourishing of society. 
And so what we see here then is that humans are called to bring order to the world. And so at the end of Genesis 2, God creates male and female and they bring order by, uh, by forming a family. And in fact, humans flourish when we have structure to our lives. Okay? People tend to not thrive in chaos. We need to be able to have something that is predictable, something that we can count on. And so we bring order to creation and we bring order to human relationships. And, and healthy family, the order of healthy family is one of the single best ways to bring about flourishing in the world. Practically every statistic that you'll look at shows that children flourish when they have their mom and dad uh, raising them and active in their lives. Okay? Now, marriage is just one type of relationship that can lead to, to flourishing, but there are actually other institutions that can do that as well. Um, as hard as it might be to believe sometimes, that's what government is for. It's to, it's to order the world so that people flourish. And you know whether you think they're successful at that or not, that's, I guess, something that we can talk about. But that's why, it was, why, it, why it's created. Um, also, um, the, it's also the job of the church. And in fact, this is another institution, along with marriage, that God created. Family and the church are the two primary institutions that God created to bring about flourishing in the world. And so as a church, we have to continually look at ourselves and, and say, all right, what are we accomplishing here? Are we actually accomplishing the flourishing of our neighborhood or the people around us? Okay? Now, this doesn't mean that you can't flourish if you're not married both Jesus and the Apostle Paul affirm the, uh, the, the value of singleness. And actually, Jesus himself was single. And I think we can probably all agree that, that Jesus himself worked for the flourishing of the world. right? Uh, but the point is, is that as humans, we are not meant to do this alone. We need each other. So, the, uh, the image of God so far means that all human life has incalculable value. It means that we are stewards of God's creation. And finally, it means that we were created for loving relationship. Okay? One of the rival views of humanity today or the, of reality today is what we might call maybe the godless evolutionary view. This view tells us that the primary task of humans is survival and competition. Well, this flies in the face of what the Bible tells us about our purpose, because the Bible tells us that our purpose is to love. And theologians tell us that this is rooted in the doctrine of the Trinity, God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I know that we oftentimes think that, that the Trinity is just this, some, this uh, abstract doctrine that doesn't really have any practical value, but actually it's, it's not just an abstract concept. Because Christian theologians from the beginning, from the early church fathers all the way up till today, see the Trinity as a model for loving relationship. In other words, they point out that because God is Trinity, God was never alone, and God is inherently love, because in order to have love, you need to have relationship. And so if God was always in relationship, then he was always love. And so it also kind of busts the myth that God created humans because he was lonely. I heard that in Sunday school a few times, right? Actually, he created humans so that we could experience the self-giving love in the way that he does. 1 John 4, 7 says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. What it says is that God is the source of our love. He created us to need and also to give love. 
So Genesis tells us that when God created the world at the end of every day, like Abby said, God said that it was good, right? And by good, it means this is the way things are supposed to be. But there is one time in the creation story where it says that it's not good. Genesis 2.18, God says it is not good for the man to be alone. Now, like we said earlier, too often, when we don't think biblically about what it means to be human, then we settle for things like being successful or rich or popular or right or even just religious. But over and over, Scripture tells us that we are most human when we love God and love our neighbors. Just a a few passages here. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, we find what's called the Shema, which is like the core of Jewish teaching about what you're supposed to be, okay? Um, And it says that we are called to love the Lord with all our heart, soul, and strength. In the book of Matthew, when the religious leaders asked Jesus the most important law, he referred to the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6, but he also added that we are also to love our neighbors as ourselves. This is the most important thing. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that when we love our enemies, we are most like our Heavenly Father. 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that if we don't have love, then nothing else that we have matters. The Apostle Paul tells the Galatian church that their religious practices like circumcision matter very little. What really matters matters is faith expressing itself through love. Colossians 3.14 tells us that love is the glue that holds together all other Christian virtues. If you look through scripture, what you'll find is that self-sacrificial love, not just for our family, not just for our tribe, not just for our church, not just for the people that we like, but for all of humanity, is at the core of what we were created to be as human beings. And if that's true, then in order for us to know what we are created to be, I think it would be good for us to take a look at Jesus, who was 100% God, but 100% human. And the Bible tells us that Jesus was the model of what we are supposed to be. In fact, John 3.16 tells us that it was out of God's love for the world that Jesus came and died, and he died for us because we failed to live up to the high standards, to the high calling that, that he gave us. And in so doing, not only did Jesus forgive our sins and give us a clean state, slate, but he also gave us the perfect model of what we are supposed to be as human beings. So we can talk about abstract ideas of what it means to be human, and I guess we just did to some degree. hope you don't see it as a waste of time now. But if you really want to know what, it's, what we ought to be as humans, what we're intended to be as humans, open up the Gospels and start to read and to look at Jesus and you'll see the best picture that you could ever have. So, I guess the question that I want to leave you with today is, how are you living out what God created you to be? Do you value all of life as sacred? Do you see it as your purpose to fulfill the creation mandate that God gave us to steward his resources? And do you see your highest calling as self-sacrificial love? It's at the very heart of what the Bible says that it means to be human. So the question is, how human are you these days? Let's pray. 
Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you for this guide and, and the structure, the doctrine that we have that tells us who we are and can show us who, how we can live. We thank you for the freedom that you've given us to, to be able to make the choices on our own, but that you haven't left us without hope, that you haven't left us without a guide for what you want us to be. And so God, I, I pray for your church right now that we would more and more look like Jesus. That more and more, that we would just get down to the, to the basics of what it means to be human and stop focusing on so many of the things that we focus on that don't really matter. Stop thinking that life revolves around us and the purpose of life is to accumulate or take it easier to live in comfort. But God, I pray that that we would follow the model of Jesus who gave himself for us so that we might not just live, but flourish. I pray for your, for your Holy Spirit to strengthen us, to continue to teach us, to convict us, and help us to live out what you've called us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. You've been listening to the Wake Park Church Sermon Podcast from Wake Park Church in Northeast Minneapolis. We hope this week's sermon helped you learn to know and love Jesus more and serve Him in your unique place in the world. If you have feedback or questions, get in touch with us by emailing podcast at wakeparkchurch.org.